reading from Ephesians chapter 5, which I believe is on page 829 of your Pew Bibles. Going from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, which is on page 829 in the Red Pew Bibles. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should be there, nor should there be obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, person, such a man is an idolater, has uh, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath, wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in, in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This it is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, while there's a little bit of rustling still, I'm going to um, pray. We'll ask God to help us to understand a bit more of this passage and also be willing to be obedient to him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we share this morning. Thank you that we can be gathered together uh, to consider your word as a church family. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that are set before us today and we ask for your help to put them into action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, isn't it wonderful when uh, people make a change in life? Uh, John Newton wrote a hymn we're very familiar with. It's probably the most familiar hymn on the planet, Amazing Grace. He wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And it was a good summary of the work in God, that God made in John Newton's life to move him from darkness into light. Although he'd grown up with a Christian mother, unfortunately she died of tuberculosis when he was age seven. And so he didn't grow up knowing Jesus as his Lord. From about age 11, he uh, had worked in... Uh, on the sea, he had a, a fairly lengthy spell with the Royal Navy, but he was, he was a rebellious guy uh, and he actually 
got thrown out of it. He was put in some chains and then whipped. And after a while, he tried to persuade his uh, captors that he could go and still work in the sea, seafaring industry. And as many of us know, he became a slave trader. And that role involved him going to Africa and to negotiate with some African chiefs to hand over uh, slaves. And this is what he said of himself. I was exceedingly wretched. I not only sinned myself, uh, sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others on every occasion. <clears throat> he wasn't a great guy, actually. He, um, he had a good time pleasing his slave uh, partners and, uh, yeah, was, was engaged in a dreadful act. But one night uh, he was on a ship and they struck a very fierce and sudden storm. And the storm flooded the ship with water. And fearing for his life, he'd actually been reading a, a Christian book at the time and he was wondering a bit about Christianity. He found himself saying, Lord, have mercy on us and thought that his uh, shortcomings were too great to be forgiven. He managed to survive the storm. And then he began and said, I began to think of Jesus, whom I had so often derided of his life and his death for sins not his own, but for those who in their distress should put their trust in him. And in the coming days, John Newton uh, read about the prodigal son from Luke's Gospel, and the story impressed him. He thought there was hope for him. And he wrote, I was no longer an atheist. I was sincerely touched with a sense of undeserved mercy in being brought safe through so many dangers. And it was a good moment in his life. He says, I was a new man. What a wonderful change from dreadful beginnings, from real darkness into God's light. And it's a magnificent story, isn't it, of God's work in someone's life to bring them new life in Christ. Well, John Newton's change from darkness to light uh, builds on the story, really, that we have from the New Testament, uh, from Ephesians. Paul has spent some time uh, talking to the Ephesians, writing to the Ephesians, and reminding them of the significance of what they have in Christ. He wants them to see clearly, very clearly, the difference between their old way of life and he wants them to look carefully at God's new way of life for them. And so this section begins with the introduction, but among you. And he's going to be saying amongst yous, as we'd say in Australian slang, yous, because it's the whole church. And this message has a serious tone to it. It's not a jokey kind of passage. It's a, there's a serious tone with what we had in the Bible reading and what's about to follow. And the first point that Paul makes is that some things are out of place for God's people. Some things are out of place for God's people. Verse 3 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. In this passage, Paul's making a distinction between paganism, the ways of the world, and the way that the church should be living. And he raises the topic of sexual immorality as the head of the list of sins. The word 
translated sexual immorality is the word porneia, and it refers to any illegitimate sexual intercourse, but in particular, adultery and using prostitutes. But the term is broader, and it can refer to any practice uh, of sex outside God's intended marriage context. And so porneia is also translated fornication in some other passages. Now, Paul, Paul warns against every kind of impurity. So he's not saying it's not only unrestrained sexual behaviour, like, for example, group sex, uh, but also other practices which he doesn't elaborate on here. So he could, there's a whole lot of things that they were familiar with that he doesn't write down here, but he just has a catch-all, all kinds of impurity. And it's interesting to note in this list, he includes greed amongst it as well. The insatiable desire to have more than one needs or wants. And in this context, it can also be greed with respect to uh, sexual gratification as well. But the point is that there mustn't be a hint of these things among God's people. Literally, a word-for-word translation in the Greek is, let it not be named among you. And so that's partly what we're grappling with is, how were these people to be named? How were were they to be known? Were they to be characterised by those things? When people thought about their church, what did they think of? What was their reputation like? Was their church characterised by adultery and orgies, wife swapping and swinging as it's come to be known as, or generally promiscuous behaviour? Was that the reputation that their church had, along with greediness? Well, Paul gives a reason why they shouldn't be known for these things. He says, because they're improper for God's holy people. He's saying there's a, there's a change. They're not pagans in the way that they were. This is a new life that they've come to. And it's not how God's people should be known. Well, having grown up in this town, uh, it was always my impression from what people said that some local sporting communities uh, were characterised with negative reputations for their morality. But it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, wherever you go, wherever there are people, there can be mischief. And perhaps it's true that some of the local sporting clubs had been known for these sorts of things. But the important thing is that God's word is reminding us today that his church here ought not be characterised by these things. We shouldn't be known for our sexual immorality in this community. So how are we known to our local community? What is our reputation like as we take Christ's name before the world? That's the idea of um, in the second commandment, maybe the second or third, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's not just about saying, oh, Holy Spirit, or blaspheming. It's about not taking God's name before the world. Uh, The Israelites weren't supposed to take God's name before the world Uh, and live like the world and we're also called not to take God's name before the world uh, and be dreadful either. But if our congregation is in the clear right now with respect to a relatively pure church, then that's something that uh, we ought to preserve and maintain. To quote messages from the army, If you've got the high ground, you try to keep the high ground. So if we're doing well and we're in the clear and it's a pretty pure congregation where there's no skullduggery, 
well, then that's a good thing. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, concerning sexual immorality, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. And the point there is that it only takes something little to affect the whole thing. You think about a small spark in a forest, it only takes a little spark to set the whole forest on fire. And so what we need to do is maintain that. We need to be a congregation that's not characterised by sexual immorality. We mustn't condone sexual immorality. Instead, the challenges from Scripture are to flee it. Now, as I said earlier, Paul gives reasons why they shouldn't be known for these things and it's because these are improper for God's holy people. The church shouldn't be like that. But there are other things that are out of place for God's people too, aren't there? And we see some of these in verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul's now turning his attention to speech that's conducted within the church. Obscenity or indecency refers to some disgraceful speech. Foolish talk is somewhat self-explanatory. And coarse joking refers to uh, wittiness but of a rotten kind. You can have a a witty conversation, play on words and things uh, at the dinner table and it can make for a more interesting mealtime as we joke about different words at our place. But it's not to be rotten, it's to be good humour. And Paul's saying, don't get engaged in these kinds of words because dirty minds are expressed in vulgar ways. And it is a challenge to tame the tongue. That's uh, what we're told in James. Anybody who can tame the tongue is a better person than I am. But the challenge remains to try and tame the tongue because these things aren't fitting for God's people to have our language characterised in those ways. Instead, Paul commends another approach to life with our speech, and that's to be uh, involving thanksgiving to God. That's the right response to God. We can thank God for his blessings in creation, including our sexuality expressed in the right ways. We can give thanks to God for the salvation that we enjoy, And as we do give thanks to God, we remember that God is the one who is the source of all good things and source of all blessing. So it's right that our speech is characterised by thanksgiving. Now, unfortunately, we can be inundated with uh, coarse jokes. Having grown up at the tennis club, been in staff rooms and part of some building courses, uh, at times we do get inundated. I'm sure you've been inundated with coarse jokes as well. At times, these things can even be difficult to remove from our minds. But they certainly don't bring glory to God. And so some of these things are out of place for God's people and God calls us not to take part in obscenity, foolish talk and coarse joking. I was talking with some people earlier at the 9 o'clock church over morning tea saying there's a funny, it's a funny little balance between being connected to the people of the world and blending with them and engaging with them And yet at the same time, not trying to, I guess, be caught up in this sort of world. It's a a tension, isn't it? When they want to share some things that they think are humorous and then to not want to laugh at the jokes can uh, ostracise us. But that's the challenge, isn't it? So it remains for us as Christians to work at taming the tongue 
and leaving these sort of things behind us. The second point in your outline you'll notice is that God warns us how to live and I'll pick that up in verse 5 if you're following along. It says, for of this you can be sure, verse 5, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Well, in this verse, Paul makes the point that the person who lives an immoral, impure and in a greedy way is an idolater. Idolater. That is, they've shown that they've given themselves over to a way of living in sin where they're unrepentant. And as such, they're described as not as worshippers of God, they're described as worshippers of idols. Ultimately, even if they say they're Christians, and they can, people do profess to be Christians, but they can show where they stand by serving created things rather than the Creator, as Paul writes in Romans. They, they buy a lie and serve the things that we enjoy from the Creator, but they forget to give glory and thanks to the Creator. They end up serving the flesh rather than serving God. And that's why it's idolatry, to serve these things instead of serving God. <clears throat> and that's how people of the world live. Paul makes it clear that they won't be inheriting God's kingdom. It might have been easy for these people in Ephesus to slip back into their old pagan ways. And so he's reminding them that they'd be going the wrong way and that they need to change back. And if they don't, then they can't be given any assurance that all is well with God. It's not. He tells them straight, if they live this way as the pagans do, they wouldn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. It's a stern and sober warning. And it's sad to see people in this boat at times too. A few years ago, a Christian mate and I knew someone who worked in an overtly Christian workplace that person used to like to say that they like to worship God at church with an instrument, which was code for they like to play the electric guitar out the front. And my friend, who maintained a bit more contact with this person, asked how they were going over time and found that they'd been demoted from worshipping God with an instrument, which means they were no longer playing their electric guitar at the front. And it became clear later that this person had really given themselves over to the kind of life that Paul's warning against here. He'd fallen away and he was now living a very different and sad uh, way of life. But what could we say to that person? Could we say, all's well, you're assured of your salvation, there's no problem? <coughs> well, I don't think that's the thrust of the sword of the spirit in this passage, is it? And this warning here is by no means alone in other parts of the Bible either. There's no assurance given that if we rebel against God and sin unrepentantly, if we live in sin, there's no assurance given that all's well. Paul writes the same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, if you want to look at that later. For those who are unrepentant, for those who think that they have a license to sin, 
For those who live in sin and give themselves over to it and refuse to repent, the message here is as clear as it is sad that if you live like that, you won't inherit God's kingdom. And that's a sad thing. Now, Paul's not referring to the person who has fallen into sin but who has repented of it, like King David in the past. As we know, he made a blunder, but he was repentant. That's the difference. He just didn't live in sin. He fell in it, but he didn't stay in it. And Paul's writing these things because he's conscious that although his, his church that he's writing to may have slipped back into old pagan ways, and it's also possible for us to slip, any of us, to slip into these ways as well, he doesn't want them to. God doesn't want us to fall away. Paul's in prison somewhere, in chains, and he puts his uh, pen or quill or whatever he had, some feather in ink, and he writes this message to these people because he wants to warn them against an unbelieving and disobedient way of life and where it leads to. And yet God also knows that we are not perfect either, doesn't he? Which is why he sent his son Jesus to die and rise in our place. God knows our problem. He knows that we're all in the same boat, that none of us are perfect, that we're all sinners, that we fall short each in our own way, that there's things that we're not proud of. But Jesus faithfully paid the penalty for our sins in his sin-bearing death that we might be redeemed. That's a relief, isn't it? We get to stand in God's grace. We get to enjoy a new kind of life where we enjoy his forgiveness. And more than that, we're adopted into his family. And that's a wonderful and comforting thought, isn't it? Even though we've been rebellious, we've also been forgiven, stand in his grace and brought into his family. And so now that we are children, God's children through Christ, we mustn't live in sin, we must repent of it. But at the same time, we must not be deceived about the seriousness of living in sin, as we'll see in verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, if you're following along with me, says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, I don't know if, whether you like what I've got to say or not this morning, um, but at one level, it doesn't bother me altogether because I didn't say it. It's just what the Apostle's telling us from God's Word. I'm simply trying to bring out some clarity here and ram it home, I suppose, but these are challenging things to hear. They're also good things to hear too because the more we're confronted with sin, the more we understand what God's done for us in Christ, and that's, that's great. But we mustn't be deceived about the seriousness of sin. Paul now counters a criticism. Some might argue that it doesn't matter how we live. Whether we serve God or not, we'll still enter his kingdom, they might think. Paul anticipates that kind of approach. And he objects to it, reminding his readers that people might try to trick them or deceive them by saying that you can live in sin and all's well. Well, Paul calls that kind of deception empty words. They amount to nothing, these words. It's like me telling you I'm the best snowboarder around. 
They're just empty. It's just not true, folks. I'm not a great snowboarder. They're empty words. They're not true. And these words aren't true as well. They can't be deceived. God's wrath will come onto the disobedient. Unless they come to Christ, they'll bear God's justice for their rejection of God and their sinful way of life. And he concludes by saying, don't be partakers with them, which I take it he means back in their old way of life, the way the pagans lived, the life that they used to live, they mustn't sort of participate in that. They've moved to a different world now. Now, deception is something that we've got to guard against. Paul writes to Timothy and says, wicked people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Which is his way of saying, although there's people who would try to deceive you about the truth, stick with what you've been taught by Paul the Apostle and his grandmother Lois. And don't be surprised if people play down or try to play down the reality of God's judgment. It's been said for centuries that people believe what they want to believe. And our capacity for self-deception seems to run pretty strong. Recently I watched a program with an attempted comedian Billy Connolly on it. And it was a program about death. I don't know if anyone here has watched it. Billy Connolly annoys me anyway, actually. Uh, but during this particular interview that he had with a holy man, the, the person he was talking to said, you don't need to worry about life after death because God will look after those who've been good. To which Billy Connolly responded by saying that was the thing that bothered him the most. <laughs> It was an interesting part of the program because at least Billy Connolly had enough self-reflection to know that he'd fallen short of how he should have lived as one of God's creatures. But the person that was giving him the advice was self-deceived. It's simply self-deception to think that we can face a holy God who does not tolerate sin and think that all will be well. Well, we mustn't be seed be deceived with empty words. We need to hold on to the salvation that God's provided. God's provided a pathway for us to avoid his wrath. He's provided a way for us to come to know him. And the salvation that we can enjoy from sin comes through his son. Through faith in Jesus is the way to enjoy God's favour and forgiveness. And we mustn't be moved away from that salvation. We've got a new life to live. That's the fourth point in your outline there. And we see some of that in verses 8 to 14. If you're following along, I'll read from 8 to 10 to start with. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Paul now calls on them to cast their minds back to where they've come from. He describes their old way of life in simple terms. He says it was darkness. Once you were darkness, it sounds bleak, doesn't it, and, and hopeless. But he challenges them to live a new life, to walk in the light, to live as children of the light, lives characterised by goodness, 
righteousness and truth. And he calls them to examine or to find out or to test what it means to please the Lord. He's saying think about ways or courses of action which are pleasing to God. Give some thought to what actually is a pleasing life to God. They're to cast their minds back to where they've come from. You can think about your own life there and to pursue a different kind of future. Paul continues in verse 11, if you're reading on, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. There seems to be this progression in this part of the Bible from darkness to light. He's saying that as Christians live God's way, to some extent that even shows up dark deeds for what they are. And it seems that the Christians through their witness may even have an impact on other people coming to be in the light as well. Second half of verse 13 says, This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, even speaking about the wicked things that people can do uh, can actually set up a culture for indulging in the same kinds of things. Have you noticed that even our media indulges in this a bit? They like to speak about the wicked things that people do. Recently, I saw a report on the ABC, which took the moral high ground. Shame, shame, Todd Carney, you've been a very naughty boy. You've posted lewd pictures of yourself on the internet, and now you've lost your job with the Cronulla Sharks as a football player. But there's a bit of hypocrisy in the way that they report it, because they say, whilst they're busy saying, tut, tut, Todd... They then go on to say, but let's have a look at the pictures anyway. And then they beam up on primetime news, some somewhat censored picture of Todd Carney in compromising position. But the message of this passage is we shouldn't be like that culture. We shouldn't be entertained by mentioning what the wicked do in secret. Our church shouldn't have a culture of repeating the fruitless deeds of darkness in order to be thrilled and excited by them. Instead, we're called to a different kind of life. Paul uses light as the metaphor to describe the sphere in which we now live. We're called children of light because we've got this new and better kind of life to live than what we might have lived otherwise, rather than indulging in the old ways of indulging in sin and living in darkness. Well, John Newton uh, lived a very wayward life for a time, in darkness and strife. As someone who was in charge of uh, the slaves, he was pretty content at times, pleasing his um, partners in crime. But he was also very grateful that he'd received mercy and he understood that the mercy he received was undeserved. He was very grateful for it. In fact, he... uh, it took him a while to, to get on top of what it meant to live a different kind of life. Even after he became a Christian, he was still the captain of um, some boats which carted slaves. Did you know that? And he had Bible studies for a time in uh, the cabin's quarters. 
And it took him a while to realise too that when he was out of that job, he shouldn't receive a kickback for uh, some work with people in that association. So he learnt from some people that that's got to go as well. It took him a while to make some changes. And after a while, he actually became an Anglican minister uh, and he had an impact. <coughs> in that process of realising what it meant to be living a different kind of life, uh, John Newton became a preacher who preached to William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce uh, became convinced of, uh, of, a, of a Christian life was the way to go and also to abolish slavery. And so John Newton uh, had an impact not only on William Wilberforce, in, who, who had an impact through Parliament to abolish slavery, uh, but also John Newton was able to witness as to the atrocities of slavery in his lifetime to also help put it to death as well. He moved from a dreadful life, one that he could vouch for, and one that he was saddened by as he thought about it later on. He moved from a dreadful life of darkness into light. May God help us to be people who uh, appreciate his grace, his undeserved favour and his mercy, and to be committed to living in a consistent way in the light, to put to death the misdeeds of darkness, and enjoy living in the light of Christ, to live as children of light. Well, let us ask God now to help us to pursue that new life now. and Let us pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would forgive us for living in a way that is out of place for your people. As we look at the list of sins here before us and we think about our hearts and the ways that we might have fallen short, we do confess uh, our rebellion against you and Lord we pray that you would help us to avoid sinning in this way Lord we ask you'd help us to heed the warnings that you have about the seriousness of living in sin unrepentant and Lord we thank you that you've brought us here together today uh, to remember that that way of life lived in rebellion against you is not the right way to go but that we can uh, enjoy your forgiveness and live a new life where we do consistently repent of our sin. Lord, we give you thanks for your willingness to forgive us for our unrighteousness. We don't deny it, Lord. We just confess it to you. And as we turn, we rely on the work of Jesus on our behalf who died and rose again for us. And that's something we're very grateful for, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live consistently a new kind of life, the life where you've called us to live as children of the light. And we ask for your help to do that. We thank you that we can encourage each other today to do that. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.